Welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your host. This is Kyle. Hello. This is Nina. Yeah, I'm Nina. Uh, so if you've been with us for a while, you would have probably already noticed that we've discussed almost all roles in debate. Yeah, so we did one of our first episodes was on first speakers. We said it was very um, underappreciated as a role. And then we were talking about in later episodes, episode 8 and 9, I think we had a two-parter on how to make extensions. So as far as I'm concerned, that sort of covers some tips and tricks on how to do deputy and member uh, speeches. And most recently, we had one about whipping. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about, finally, the complex world of adjudication. And this has been an episode long requested. But again, I felt like Personally, I didn't want to talk about adjudication without first discussing the rules. Because to adjudicate properly, you also need to know how the other rules work and how to properly assess what the other rules do. But I guess the reason why I'm also hesitant about making an ADGE episode is because it's been so long since I've been a career judge. So I started my debate career in college as a judge. So I would always go to tournament judging. I would accumulate awards for judging. And That's partially because I was scared of debate at the time. Like debaters were so intimidating to me that I felt that maybe if I was judging them, after a while I'd be less scared of them and just realize that each speaker is just a set of ideas. And I guess that helped me eventually transition into debating because my experience as a judge gave me less intimidation in debating and I would even say gave me a little bit of an edge, especially when giving replies. Yeah, naman, on the other hand, I, I feel like I was on the complete other end of that spectrum where I didn't start off as a judge. I started off as a debater in like 10 years ago. And then I was the kind of person to just like bitch and moan about judges. Like they didn't understand what I said. I di- they didn't understand what I said. It's so bad. They're so stupid. And like at the time, there were these like complaints about how the judge pool now is so bad. Like back then... It was generally agreed upon that the judge pool was pretty robust. So, like, I didn't realize that I was the problem. So, my coach got mad at me, like, you know, it's your fault that you're not being understood. You're not clear enough. So, like, I shut up about it for a while, but, like, I still had that feeling of resentment. But when I entered into college and I started judging, that's when I was like, yeah, no, debaters are actually way less clear than they think they are. And, like, Judges, even though most of the time they understand like what the argument is and where the argument is leading, they also have a responsibility not to step in. Like they also have the responsibility to like take it at face value in order to be fair and objective to everyone involved. So I think that's the time when I was like, yeah, judging is very difficult. I'm not a good judge, and it was a very important milestone in my debate career when I. Like had the humility to admit that this is a completely different world that I just wasn't prepared to enter because I always thought of it as like something that is completely different from debating. Well, it is different, but I was thinking that they're here to service my own ego rather than something as intrinsically <laughs> important, you know? Yeah. So I guess for this episode, what we're going to try to do is. I break a lot of the misconceptions that people have towards judging. We're also going to talk about our personal principles of judging and the basics. Well, I guess a disclaimer here would be that we won't tackle all the basics because not only would that be 
very repetitive of what we expect a lot of our listeners to already know, especially if you're a debater. But if you're not, welcome. Um, this is about judging debates. It can still service you, I guess. But if you really want to learn about the specifics, we really recommend you look at other resources. Like the World's Judging Manual, for example, is really robust and comprehensive. Also, if you're a seasoned debater, we recommend and we expect that you listen to a lot of the, the judge briefings that happened before a tournament. So we're not going to talk about like what the role of a judge is in the simplest of terms. We're just going to try to dig deep from the onset. Yeah, but also this will be a two-parter thing, you know, because we feel like it's something that you can talk about at length. Like it could actually be more than two parts, but like for brevity's sake, let's keep it at two. You know, like mm. this is our general rule: two parts at most. Um, so in this episode, we're going to be talking about like the general principles behind judging, and then Sigur, in the next one, we're going to talk about the more nitty gritty aspects of it. Like how do you make time management? <laughs> how can you like better construct your oral adjudication? How can you train to be a judge, etc. So I guess the first thing would be, what is the role of an adjudicator? Because as much as we all know they're there to judge the debate, like how exactly should they judge? What exactly makes an adjudicator different from any normal person who is observing the debate? Well, so I've scoured through all my old resources as well as the judge manual. And this is like the ultimate summary I could make. So judges or adjudicators are in charge of deciding which teams win from the perspective of an average reasonable person. Teams win debates by being persuasive with respect to the burdens their side of the debate is attempting to prove within the constraints set by the rules of the debate format that they are using, whether it be British parliamentary or Asian parliamentary or whatever else format you decide to use. I don't think the mic picked it up, but I I actually groaned and I visibly winked. Oh, winked. I visibly winced. Wow, I winked. (laughs) I winced when you said average reasonable person because... As we have already talked about in a previous episode, the phrase average reasonable person or the ordinary intelligent voter or informed global citizen, those buzz phrases, they're like big Pandora's boxes. Because like, what do you expect from an, an, an average reasonable person? What does it mean to be reasonable? Uh, like, we already talked about that at length uh, in, the, yeah. in the episode about matter. Like, how much should matter matter in winning debates or whatever? I think episode 18. Yeah. yeah um, but I think like to simply put it, the average reasonable person, at the very least, should not have preformed views on the topic of the debate. Um, they should probably have knowledge of the topic, but none of that knowledge should be specialized. None of that knowledge should be specialized, meaning uh, they probably read a lot, like they like they read the newspapers and they know what happens, but they don't know enough to make them sway towards one side or the other with regard to a particular issue. So, uh, more importantly, an average reasonable person, we believe, should not be convinced by, like, sophistry or deception or fallacies, even though, you know, even though, like, in reality, the average person probably believes in those things. Um, We expect, like, a higher (laughs) ideal of what an average reasonable person should be like you know, um, yeah. and they are supposed to be willing to be convinced by compelling arguments rather than like being set in their own, like I said, preconceived notions of what the debate should be like or what the world should look like. Yeah. So besides that 
Um, another part of the definition that's important is to look at persuasion because persuasion needs to be quantified. It's not enough to be persuasive for the sake of persuasion. Like, I don't know, you use your 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 looks to be persuasive or your humor. Like, obviously, that's not going to fly in this sport because you need to be relevant to the debate and you have to be persuasive uh, with regards to knowledge and with regards to logic. Um, the third thing that's important are also the rules. So as much as persuasion is important, as much as as a judge you are an average reasonable person, you also have to make sure they're following the rules set by the debate. So a whip, for example, can be as persuasive as they want to be, but the moment they start giving new arguments, then you have to assume that they're less persuasive than they probably are because you have to take into consideration that, you know, they shouldn't be making new arguments. Even if a lot of whips nowadays do, you know. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, that reminds me of something that I learned in class, where we were talking about like the rules on evidence, and my professor, who is an actual judge, um, in in a court of law, um, he was talking about like, like the truth, um, he was talking about how there are a lot of things that are very relevant, are very persuasive, but cannot be admitted into evidence because they're not sanctioned by the rules. And I feel like that is also something that we can apply in this context because adjudicators are also judges, right? So like, yeah. it's not enough for the things that are said by debaters to be persuasive or even relevant. They also have to be sanctioned within the rules. So I suppose that if you have like a really relevant piece of information, but it violates like the rules on equity, you should not admit that. You should not consider that. Or if you have a very compelling or relevant like idea, but y- you raised it at the ninth minute when you're supposed to only speak for seven minutes, then it should also not be counted. So it's not enough for it to be persuasive or relevant. It should also be like fa- be sanctioned or like be approved of by the rules of the game that we're playing. I also think that there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about how we treat adjudication in general. Because like what I said, um, a lot of debaters, myself included when I was younger, we treat adjudication like as a counterpart to debating instead of like something that's intrinsically valuable as its own skill. So we already know why debating is a good skill to develop, but when it comes to judging, usually the hot takes here revolve around like, you can't have debate tournaments if you don't have judges or you can become a better debater if you're a good judge but you can't necessarily become a good judge if you're a good debater and those stakes are valid but I just feel like it's different because while they are correct they are valid I think I also feel like they limit what it means to be a judge or like it limits our understanding of the significance of judging because I just think that Judges also want to be persuasive, but the kind of persuasiveness that judges should aim to have is a different kind of persuasiveness compared to what debaters want to have. Yeah, so I personally think adjudication is important because it's difficult, like you say. It's not as easy as switching from debating to judging because I guess that the skills of persuasion inherently become different. It still means that you can be swayed by things that should not sway us, right? Like, that's the skills that we need to get rid of. And in in debates, you enter with a particular mindset. Like, you are trying to prove this particular end goal because the motion is practically given to you. But as a judge, you enter with, 
like either or being a possibility. So it becomes a, a lot more difficult and easy to be swayed by things that you shouldn't be swayed by. So adjudication helps us in the real world as well because it helps us assess things from the perspective of a judge. Like when you're reading tweets or looking at an argument between friends, being a judge or having a background in adjudication helps in those situations. It also helps us discern what are good and bad arguments, which I guess in our political landscape is very relevant. And adjudication also helps us learn how to deal with the possibility and eventuality of people disagreeing with your decisions because that's a in, like a situation judges will encounter more than debaters eventually do in this field yeah i so i did talk about why i feel like the kind of persuasiveness is different but to expound on that i would say that judging is an even tougher practice of persuasion or at least it's just as tough because You're persuading someone not because you want to win a debate or you want to win an argument, but because you want to persuade people who actually have a stake in the decision. Um, so it's like you have all these different debaters and they're very egotistical. I imagine them to be like Ben Shapiro's because they, they talk fast. They feel really smart. They sound really smart, even though sometimes the actual meat, the meat and potatoes of the, the argument, they're not that good. Um, so when you're a judge, it's like you're trying to convince, in the worst cases, people like Ben Shapiro, um, who are fervently unwilling to move, um, that they have bad takes or that their arguments aren't as convincing as they think they are. Um, so you have to be really persuasive in a way that's palatable to really big, very intense personalities. And I also just feel like, It might also be a good investment, like if you want to think about it that way, because like good debaters rely on good judges to be better, and like newer debaters really, really need good judges in order to become better debaters. Um, so I think that having a good tournament, having a really good um, debate community, relies on having a good pool from both of those like aspects, like a good. Edge pool, but also a good debater pool, and I also feel like they mutually reinforce one another, or ideally they should mutually reinforce one another. Yeah, so I I also feel like when you're coaching people or if you're deciding to teach debate, it it really does help if you also have a judge background. So Kaya and I are always a tandem, especially when we're coaching like Saint Paul, and that's usually because we have different approaches to the same thing, and that like variation in approach comes from our backgrounds of being a judge and being a debater. So what should judges look for in a debate though? Like what makes them really so different in terms of their mindset and their approach to watching debates? So I guess, put simply, there are certain things that you should be persuaded by and things that you probably shouldn't be persuaded by. And I say this loosely because a lot of like judge protocols and judge things and principles are not really set rules or checklists. They're more like guidelines, right? The code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. So why is it uh, why is it important to look at these things? I guess it's because you want to make sure you arrive at the most logical decision. And that's by avoiding things that can look persuasive at face level or like surface level. On face I'm value. I'm mixing up my metaphors. Yeah, face yeah. value, sorry. Yeah. Um, but there are certain things that you should keep in mind. For example, um, and this might be a controversial take, but I don't think style should be something that you need to assess 
like in isolation to determine whether someone is persuasive or not. And I know that this is controversial because we grew up with the idea of manner, matter, method yeah. being the three like pillars of a good like speech, right? And as a judge, you also end up like thinking that like when you watch someone, is their manner good, right? But what is manner? And I feel like manner ends up encapsulating things that it shouldn't. For example, accent shouldn't be part of manner, even if for a lot of people it is. Like just because you have like a different accent from someone who speaks predominantly English, that somehow people think that those people are more persuasive. I feel like not only is that an equity violation because it's discrimination, but it takes away from what you should really be looking at, which is the logic and the arguments and how well they're strung together by facts or like basic principles. Another thing is volume. There's a trend now that the louder you are as a debater, the better you are. So I get that volume is important because you need to hear the speech. But if someone's yelling over another, it doesn't automatically make them a good debater. Like, who are you, Ben Shapiro? Or who else are loud people? Like, Keemstar or something? Yeah, I feel like um, that trend has disappeared a little bit considering that most of our tournaments are on like Discord or True. Zoom. True. Like people have had because to like chill. it's very awkward if like you're alone in a room. It's very awkward if you're alone in a room, and then you shout at the mic or you shout at like a blank screen in your laptop. Like it's really awkward. So a lot of the time, I feel like people are just starting to learn how to chill a little bit more. But back then, right when we had like physical tournaments, you would literally hear a debater from like two rooms over. Or like at the end of the hallway, you could hear a yeah. debater. Um, I guess that's also like why a lot of people who transition to online debating are kind of confused why they might not be doing as well as they used to. Like, and, and this is not like a, a random call out because I do know some people who genuinely have had these problems, and I had to inform them straight up that your debate style, like in real life, may not be as effective as you are online. Like, I feel like my style offline. It's not as effective as my style now that it's been online. Because I always speak like I'm doing a podcast episode, even outside. And it's not really persuasive compared to people who, you know, are so passionate and will bang on their tables and stuff. But now it works out. I also feel like the the, the style that I have is different. Like, online in online debates and in offline debates, my style is completely different. Because, like, in physical rounds... I try to make jokes more often, but I feel like it's harder to make jokes uh, like online because I can't really tell what other people are thinking at the time that I'm speaking yeah. because I can't see them. But like anyway, I, I think our, our common point here is regardless of what your style is, like it's unavoidable that people judge you based on style, but ideally style should be out of the picture, right? Like. In an ideal world, it doesn't matter how loud you are. It doesn't matter what your accent is. It doesn't matter how fast you speak. Mm. All that matters is the contents of what you're saying, right? So, like, if you imagine that the the style is how you color your speech, you should not judge a speech based on the color of its surface level, but on the contents of its character, wow. like Martin Luther yeah. King. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So I I feel like um. I would say that even though I'm one of those people who like really dig humorous speeches, a good practice would be 
to treat manner as a vehicle for content rather than as something that's just valuable in and of itself. But I will ask you this though, Nina, since we all we both think that style isn't that important, I would ask you this. Would you rather give the win to a person who gave a good argument but was very, very difficult to understand? Like for example, they use a lot of like jargon, like they use phrases like interest rates, And we're just like, honey, we're talking about tourism here. <laughs> like, why are you talking about interest rates? Why are you talking about like delta delta quantity over delta price or something? Why are you talking about that? So it's a good argument, but it's very difficult to understand. Would you give that person a win over someone who had a less good argument but was incredibly easy to understand? So I guess it always depends, right? Like, if you're saying that they're difficult to understand. It should be like, why are they difficult to understand? If they're difficult to understand because I'm not attuned to the like accent they're using, then obviously I have to assess like what I'm writing down and what they are really saying outside of the accent they're using. So they could win if that was the reason they were being difficult to understand. But if we're using your reason, which is like they have a lot of buzz phrases that they're throwing around, like motherhood statements that lead to nowhere, then obviously. Even if they sound like they have a full speech and you, they have a lot of words that are nice to write down. If it doesn't tie together to be a good argument, then yeah, I'd be willing to give the win to someone who had a simpler argument if they were able to round it out better and conclude it better and tie it to the motion better. Yeah, because if if you do that, then there really isn't a contradiction here. There's no inconsistency. You're just like defining what style is and what like. Matter and method yeah. are so like it wasn't ineffective because the style was bad. It was ineffective because like the matter was not there. Because ideally, if you have if you give a lot of jargon, right, you should be able to explain it in a way that's understandable. So in this case, it's not because yeah. In in this case, it's because the matter part was lacking. It's not because of the manner at all. But then I I also think about. The number of arguments that the speaker makes, or how interesting the argument is, or how spicy the argument is, because in the past we have been talking about like our propensity to make lists.、Mm. Like we always said that、um, we prefer making lists so that it is very clear how many levels of analysis that we have. But I think we should be clear here that just because we like speaking in that way and making those lists. That doesn't mean that you should give the win to someone who has more arguments, for example, or more interesting or more spicy arguments,、um, because the quality of those arguments might be lacking. Like, for example, the dish might be very spicy, but it doesn't taste good, or like it's not filling. Or you can have you can give like Gordon Ramsay like a ten course meal, but none of the dishes were any good. He's still gonna call you a donkey. He's still gonna call you an idiot sandwich, right? Because it doesn't really matter、um, how many there are or how like conceptually interesting it is. It's all about the execution, I think.、Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. You don't have to hesitate there. So, like, why did we ramble about this? If you're a judge and you're listening, you might be thinking, like, we're already aware of that. Like, obviously, like we're not going to be easily persuaded by these things. Like, first of all. We're saying this in case you might be a newer judge and you might still have the tendency to overlook these aspects. You really should like double check whether you are being persuaded by the right things or not. But second, 
I think that it's valuable to know this or at least be hyper aware of these things because there's no shame in bringing it up during your decision or when you're discussing with a debater during personal comments. These are valuable things to take note of and to express. Because, for example, you might look at this, like all of what we said, and then just sum it down to the word saying, oh, you weren't comprehensive. If I was a debater and you summarized all my problems with just one word, then obviously I won't be satisfied. I will complain. I will give a nasty feedback. Well, I won't give nasty feedback, but I'm saying others would, right? But basically, don't be afraid to break down why people were not comprehensive. Like if someone gave me a lot of really pretty jargon, and this has happened, and I don't give them the win, they will come up to me and ask me, why were you not convinced by Delta Prime over Delta Alpha or whatever, right? Like that's obviously this concept, it's like the latest trend, whatever. And I will straight up say, like, yeah, you may have had all the correct jargon, but I'm an average reasonable person. I did not study whatever field that came from, like, like higher mathematics or whatever. Like, I don't know why Delta's a thing. Like, I was really confused when I first heard it. And that's the thing, right? If someone blames you for not knowing terms, as a judge, stand your ground. It's not your fault that they were not clear in translating ideas to you. So now that we've discussed that, I guess the next thing would be, obviously, what should you keep in mind then? If we listed down all the things you shouldn't be persuaded by, such as style or humor or speed and number of arguments, what should you look at then? So I'm lifting this from the world's manual. Basically, it says like the first thing you obviously have to look at would be logical explanations to why the argument is true. So how comprehensive can you be in proving why outcome B happens because of premise A and premise B and premise C, for example? It also relies on empirical evidence for an argument. So this is the tricky part, right? If you're a judge, how much should matter matter? Again, you can look back at episode 18 if you want like a more robust discussion on that particular topic. But for me, matter serves the same purpose as style. They should merely be there not to substitute the argument or substitute the logic. They should be there as a vehicle to prove why the argument and premises you laid out are more likely to happen because a trend exists. I think we have to clarify that matter in this context has a different meaning from matter in the context of manner matter method because in the context that you were talking about you're talking about like specific pieces of matter like um facts like you you get it from a fact sheet or something or you get it from an almanac but when it comes to like matter in manner matter Mm -hmm. method we're talking about like analysis as well so i uh, you might get confused because sometimes i get confused by that distinction because they use the same word eh um, but I also think that what is important should be like descriptions on why a certain argument will come about. So I also think like even if you have empirical evidence, that will not be enough because you also have to talk about what that demonstrates. And as a judge, you have to go like you have to ask yourself whether or not it was demonstrated that well using the matter. And then you can even bring it up in personal comments like. I like that you gave this piece of matter, but I don't feel like you used it well enough when you wanted to demonstrate the logic of your argument. Or you could probably also make a personal comment about, like, maybe this wasn't the best piece of matter to use or something because it doesn't mo- more effectively um, demonstrate the argument or something like that. I also feel like 
you need to be able to identify widely shared moral intuitions in favor of an argument. And this is pretty tricky because like if you enter a debate, there are probably things that most people would assume are true already. Like for example, uh, if you enter into a debate most of the time about development economics, it'll be common um, wisdom or it would be a widely shared moral intuition to say that we should probably care about the poor. But like in other situations, like outside of the debate bubble or outside of the debate room, it's not that uncontroversial. Like for us, it's uncontroversial. We should care about like the poor people. But outside, you might be shocked because a lot of people still believe that if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. And you should have like this idea of social Darwinism where like you have survival of the fittest. So if you're poor, it means that you're just not fit to live in this capitalist society or something like that. People actually like, do yeah, believe uh, that. Accidentally, uh, accidentally left Twitter? What was the name of that page? Yeah, accidentally left wing. Yeah, you see a bunch of conservatives sarcastically saying, so are you saying that <laughs> everyone should have access to food? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think everyone should have the right to live and survive. Yeah. Okay. So, it. I think it's a skill when you like identify those supposedly widely shared moral intuitions in favor of an argument in a particular debate, even though outside of that debate bubble, outside of the debate room, it might not be as widely shared as you think it should be entering the debate. Yeah. So, as a judge, though, besides looking at what a team is able to prove for themselves like in regards to their argument like how much matter they had in evidence and the logical links that they had i think what people often forget is to look at the the flip side so as a debater or as a team they also have the obligation and i guess task of ensuring that they're also able to point out the flaws of the other team you can't just make a team win based on what their case looked like in isolation. Because you also have to constantly navigate how it played into the bigger debate, how it interacted with the arguments of the other side, how it damaged the credibility of what the other team is saying. Because if you have two teams that are just saying arguments as to why they're so brilliant, they're not really debating, are they? They're just making like presentations and different reports. So as a judge, you need to constantly look at how they tied in with each other. And if they didn't, that's something you can explicitly say. Like, it therefore wasn't a really good debate. And you shouldn't be afraid of that. Nor should you actively step in to see how each argument attacked each other. Though that's a tricky situation, right? How do you deal with, like, a debate where no one was literally engaging with each other? This is where you might have to break down the arguments a little bit from your point of view and see if it damage the credibility of another team even if other teams didn't explicitly say so but hopefully you know given how much training debaters get in comparison to judges sadly hopefully you don't encounter that situation very often yeah that's what i like doing i like saying it seems like there's a deadlock here like it seems like no one was willing to engage so usually the way that i break that is by looking at Okay, a lot of the time people make contributions that they're not aware of, like they're not aware that they're engaging. And because it's they're not aware that they're engaging, they don't emphasize it. They don't emphasize that they're actually rebutting as well. Yeah. So I try to 
But when it when nobody does that like emphasis, when no one emphasizes that they're actually destroying another team's case, I try to like look for those implications, like those subtle implications. But I'm gonna ask you this, um, because we're talking about rebuttals, that's also known as like negative contributions, mm. and I do know some judges who. Like penalize a team or a speaker when they give more negative contribution as compared to quote unquote positive contribution. Do you think that that's fair? Like, do you think that um, positive contribution is worth more than negative contribution, or vice versa, or are they the same? I feel like more or less they should be treated as the same. But given dynamics of a BP round, you also have to give leeway to certain teams that are not able to do one part of it as effectively as another team. For example, OG's case will obviously be more constructive because there's not much for them to rebut yet. They only have like the LO speaker, right? And even then, it's only like the DPM that's able to contribute. So you also have to actively keep that in mind. You are applying standards, but you also have to make sure you're applying them fairly. So I think that as a judge, my rule in applying standards is not equality because even equality can be skewed, but equity. So I have to take into consideration the role of each team and their particular placement. But that's like a really, really specific thing. And we might tackle that more in the next episode. I think we should dedicate more time to it in the next episode. But basically, as a judge, you have to look at how a lot of things interplay. But the reason we're pointing it out again is because a lot of debaters will accuse you of stepping into a round if you don't explicitly explain to them why you had to resort to looking at the implications of arguments. And this is something I learned rather late in the round because I thought it was rather obvious, right? If no one was rebutting, then obviously I would take the arguments and look at how those arguments serve as rebuttals in itself. But if you do that, a lot of people will complain. Like if you were a debater, you've probably heard a judge once say like, oh, but the other team said this and I was more persuaded. Therefore, I felt like your argument was weakened. If you hear that explanation said in that way, you'll obviously protest because you're like, but they didn't do that. You're stepping in. You're just saying that the argument was a rebuttal. But there are instances where that's valid and you need to say it as a judge because part of persuasion is also explaining to debaters why you had to decide in the way that you did. Yeah, so I think in these cases, it, it seems like a gray area, right? But I think in these cases, it will probably be, it would probably be safe if you look at not just what arguments or what contributions purport themselves to be, but what they do. Like, what do they actually do? Because you can say that, I'm responding, I'm mm. responding, but they're not actually responding. So, like, we have this idea of responding, but not being responsive. So, basically, it's when you just rebut by using, like, your own frame or your own argument. But, like, that's the thing that... That's the thing that's at issue yeah. here, whether or not your frame is correct. So basically, you're saying that, like, you're wrong because I'm correct. It's a, so it's super tautological. It's you, at face value, you're being responsive, but like, really, yeah. it's not being responsive at all. So I think in these cases, these grayer areas, you should be able as a judge to not just look at what a contribution claims to be doing, but what it's actually doing in that round. So like, okay, this is a good transition to the more gray areas in uh, judging. The first one, which is, um, how should we treat role fulfillment? Because if you take a look at a lot of the 
like the mm. guides for scoring, a lot of the time they include things like a good speaker, someone who is highly aware of their like roles and fulfill their speaker roles. What do you feel like? Do you think that they should be like a big deal when it comes to judging a particular speaker or a particular debate? So I do think role fulfillment is important, but not in the way we would assume it to be. Because we have this weird misconception that, oh, if you're a prime minister and you need to do some setup, automatically they don't fulfill their role if they don't use the handle of a setup. If they don't explicitly tell you that they're setting up, somehow as judges, at times, we are like quick to believe that, oh, they didn't set up at all, therefore they failed as their PM. But sometimes so when a PM jumps straight to an argument, for example, and has a lot of premises, those premises can serve as um, setup, right? So I think the role ends up being done if these are speakers that are doing their speeches correctly or like in the way that they think is most strategic. Because if you're a first speaker, even if you don't intend it to be that way, you're gonna end up having a frame, you're gonna end up having a setup because you know that those are necessary for your arguments to be launched, right? So role fulfillment does matter. Um, especially, for example, when we look at whips. Um, if whips end up arguing, that is a role fulfillment that you actively need to take into consideration and should penalize them for or discredit them for, right? I, I on the other hand, I don't look at role fulfillment at all. I actually don't go like, I don't look at role fulfillment at all, except for that one exception about whips um, giving you matter. I just feel like, um, as a matter of strategy, it would be more strategic for a team or a speaker to fulfill roles anyway. So it's not something that's intrinsically valuable to me. I think it's just something that ends up happening because it is more strategic for a prime minister to set up a debate or to set up a policy, you know? Um, so if they don't give a policy, that's fine with me. But they shouldn't blame me when, like, in the long run, in their case, there are lots of holes in it because they didn't do as well when it comes to, like, building a policy or creating a setup. True. So, but at, but at the same time, if they don't do it, mm. I don't necessarily penalize them for not doing it. So, I feel like it's not something that's valuable in itself. It's something that's valuable because of what it ends up doing, because of its value in terms of strategy. But the next thing that we want to talk about is if you do not fulfill your roles at all, does that mean that you're going to have like an automatic loss? And this is where we want to ask about automatic losses in general. What if you have a team that's just like they completely missed the debate? Like, for example, they prepped for the other side. They prepped for the other team. Yeah, so does that mean that they're going to get automatic losses? Uh, I personally don't think that you should ever have an automatic loss because the the universe is infinite, so anything could happen. Like, even if you go into a room and, like, you haven't prepped anything and you don't know anything, there is a very small chance that everyone else knows even less than that. Yeah. You know? So I feel like there should be... You should never have an automatic loss. You should never be okay with saying, you automatically lose because you said this or you didn't say this. Yeah, so even in judge manuals, and you're, you're not wrong to think that because that's really the general rule. There's no such thing as an automatic loss in any situation because everything is going to be 
based on context, everything is going to be a case-by-case basis. So there's no like checklist of things that you fulfill to automatically get fourth in a round. There are even times where you really do want to get fourth in a round. For example, you're Iron Manning and it's strategic for you to get fourth, but you, you can't control that, right? And as a judge, you shouldn't have a checklist for what things are automatic losses. There are obviously things that automatically put you at a disadvantage. For example, reading the motion wrong will, in most situations, put you at a disadvantage. But does it mean you lose? Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, I remember in 2012, I went to Malaysia and I met this really old debater. I asked him, who are the most impressive debaters that you've ever seen in, in your very long career? Because he wasn't the type that was sensitive about how old he was in a community. <laughs> because like, he was very secure about it. You know, he has a he had a child and the child was old enough to be a college debater as well. And they debated together in a tournament. Yeah. It's very sweet. But then he, he gave me this really long anecdote about a team who in the grand finals realized that um, they were on opening opposition. They realized that they didn't take into account the possibility that opening government sets the debate in a particular way. So at that moment, like in, after the end of the prime minister's speech, they just crumpled their papers and threw it away and they still ended up winning. Even if you're in a situation where it really looks like it's bad for you, just fight it out. Just just fight it out. Because... Like, nothing is ever final. And that means that everything is possible. Um, I think the last thing that we should be able to cover, the last thing that we should be able to cover is fiat. Um, because I feel like there's a lot of confusion about what fiat is and when it does or doesn't apply. Because I see a lot of teams that try to fiat a lot of things. They say that we can assume this, this, this because of the fiat rule. So what even is the fiat rule? And what are its extents, its limits? Um, so basically, the fiat rule exists so that the debate can happen in the first place. For example, if the motion is about legalizing marijuana, and that's like a very basic motion that you give first-time debaters, right? Obviously, if you are opposition, it would not be in good spirit to argue that it would never pass the first reading, nor the second reading, nor the third reading in the Philippines because... We would never pass policies like that just because, and it's unrealistic. Like, you might think that's a good argument because, you know, it's supported by status quo and stuff, but it's not something that you should be doing, nor is it something that is accepted in debate because you are literally banning the motion from taking place and not even giving it a chance to be negotiated or discussed in terms of its values and possibilities. So fiat exists so that you get past the nitty-gritty of bureaucracy and ju- just assume that the motion already exists. What other things are covered by fiat? Obviously, if it's a motion with an info side, the things assumed in the info side, you can also assume in the debate, no matter how unrealistic. For example, the info side says that um, there is facts and evidence that exists about God existing, right? So obviously, in your speech, you can assume that that evidence exists. And Op can, can't just tell you, like, Phew, in all our years of existence, no such evidence exists. So this is a stupid like argument coming from government and they're delusional and they live in a fantasy world. Well, I'm sorry, the fiat says you do live in a fantasy world where this thing exists. So you have to operate based on that. Um, so government is free to, to do things that the motion like allows them to do as well as the info side. 
But I guess the more complicated thing would be, how does op deal with it? And for example, Kyle, when you've been in op, like how do you generally do your counter policies? What I do on opposition fiat is I assume the same resources that I would assume government would be able to um, utilize using a you know, fiat rule. So if the motion was again um, banning about banning marijuana, I would think, what are the resources that would be involved in banning marijuana? You would have all these costs that you would need in order to prosecute people. You have all these costs that you would need um, to fund the police, etc. Like buying guns or paying police salaries or hiring more policemen, those kinds of things. And then I think in using the same amount of resources, where can I put that in? So I would say maybe something like um, we're going to decriminalize it. So if people are addicted to these kinds of things, I don't even think that marijuana is addictive. But even let's say let's say that it is addictive, um, we should use the money instead of prosecuting them or putting them in jail. We should use it to like help people who have been victimized by addiction, help people who um, probably started using because of poverty or other. Um, or some other extrinsic motivator or like cause of social or political inequality, those kinds of things. So when I look at opposition fiat, I just use the same resources that were available to government. But I also think that like, again, so a better, a good generalization or a good statement of the fiat rule is, or the limits of the fiat rule is if the motion is possible, these are the things that you can assume would also be possible. So, um, if the motion was about, like, this house believes that the ASEAN should abandon the consensus rule, I think that, okay, personally, I think that that would never happen. But, like, as a debater or as a judge, it's part of fiat rule to assume that you can probably abandon the, the fiat rule. Uh, you can abandon the, the consensus rule in the ASEAN. But that doesn't mean that there's no, like, that doesn't mean that you can never argue that people don't like it. So it's another thing altogether. So I think that it would never happen, even if we assume that it does happen, we cannot assume that people would like it. And that's where the fiat rule ends. Because you can use the fiat rule to say that we can assume that the ASEAN can abandon the consensus rule, but you can't use the fiat rule to say that everyone in the world would also agree with it. And you can't fiat that you would have so much economic development because of it. You, you can't just make that part of your policy. Those are things that you still have to argue in the debate for it to make sense. Yeah, so I, I think that basically covers it for fiat, um, along with automatic losses, rule fulfillment, and all the general things. So we've taken a lot of your time already as a listener. Um, and there's still quite a lot to cover, but we're going to do that in the next episode. We're trying to be comprehensive about it, but also like make sure we get a lot of different viewpoints. So maybe next episode, you don't know, we might invite some sort of simp to give us some of their answers for some of your questions about the adjudication. So that's it. Yeah, maybe a clown. Maybe a clown. You don't know. We'll let you know in the next time. So that's it for this episode of Debatable. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again after a while. We're really sorry we're not updating like on a regular basis. Life's just really hard this quarantine, okay? 
Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Ding, ding.